The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. And, ah, there we go. I am recording. Okay. As am I. You stay out of this. In five, four, four three, three, two, two, one, one. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Uh, so we should probably be honest with our listeners and let them know that we're actually recording this one a little bit in advance, uh, because by the time they hear this, I'm going to be 1,800 miles away from where I'm recording this in Memphis. Uh, my mom's getting her hip replaced, uh, hey. and I'm... <laughs> Somehow we all decided that I was the person who should help her. Allegedly, I'm a good guy. <laughs> well, uh, here's the good news. Uh, to be a good guy, most of the time, all you got to do is show up. Uh, certainly the bar is higher than that, isn't it? No. Oh. <laughs> Not in my experience. Oh. If you just show up, show up and do what's asked of you, uh, you get to be a good person. Oh. That's what I think. I, well, in that case, I might be a good guy an awful lot of the time. Yeah, I think you're okay. I had no idea. Solidly okay <laughs> is where you are in my book. <laughs> okay. I, I am firmly acceptable. At least five out of ten most days. <laughs> and uh, I, I detect a certain note of um, globiness still in you. Uh, are we are we continuing to, to heal up? I am. Yeah, I am post covid, but I am still mucoidal. Mm. That's a word, right? Yeah, It is now for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm still trying to work out the kinks, but I have been cardiovascularly active mm. uh, without a lot of trouble. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm in it to win it. I will say that uh, we're about to get an Arctic blast here. So I'm going up to Vermont tomorrow uh, with the idea of eventually doing some skiing. But it's the high tomorrow uh, where we hunker down in Vermont is going to be negative five. That's the oh. air temperature. Oh, oh, oh. And it'll be breezy as well. So I'm going to try to get in the woods uh, where the breeze is less of an issue mm -hmm. for a little bit, but I do not believe that I will be skiing downhill or sideways or in any way uh tomorrow hopefully a little later yeah there's there's something to be said for the experience of having your sinuses freeze from wind chill 
Yeah, yeah. I yeah. That mentholated. What's happening inside of my head? Well, it's the it's the ice cream headache that occupies the entirety of the front of your skull. Yeah, it's yeah yeah yeah. That's how you know you're alive. I love that. <laughs> well, why don't you pull us into something? All right. Um, I I I have prepared a little bit of a rant today. So anyone not interested in a rant. Uh, you should go outside and smoke or do whatever it is you do. <laughs> um, we talk a l- about a lot of topics related to cycling on this, on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And while there are myriad things to discuss as relates directly to the bike mm-hmm. and riding it, cycling also extends its tendrils into all aspects of our lives. Yeah. And today I want to zoom way out and talk about a comprehensive plan to grow cycling for a few reasons that are much larger than just riding bikes is fun and everyone should do it. Okay. I mean, let's be clear. Riding bikes is fun and everyone should do it remains true. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone listening is going to disagree with you. That's right. That's right. Uh, this is a self-selecting rant. Uh, so first, at the end of two years of global pandemic, our collective mental health is a shambles. Yeah. Yeah. Anxiety and depression are rampant. True. Cycling is a non-invasive treatment for these conditions. <laughs> that is folks you will not hear a better use of the word non-invasive this week i can promise you that that's what i'm saying obviously some people will find riding a bike anxiety inducing but for the most part people who ride bikes will feel less anxious and less depressed as a result yeah second we all had our hopes raised as lockdown swept the land That the pandemic might abate the worst contributors to global warming. That was going to be the upside, the silver lining to to the dark cloud, Mm -hmm. right? So there were sporadic articles and studies that made this case. Less driving is better, et cetera, et cetera. People were riding bikes more. They were. Demand for bikes skyrocketed. People were out and about. However, I think it's safe to say that as things opened back up, driving and traffic also returned. Totes. Maybe not quite to pre-pandemic levels, but we certainly went backwards in terms of car-related air pollution. Mm-hmm. You know, we reverted to whatever, uh, which is disappointing. And the bike, of course, is one strong solution for those problems. Mm-hmm. Third, there's inequality. Mm. The haves have and the have-nots, well, it, it's right there in the name. <laughs> Bicycle transportation gives low-income people access to work, to recreation, to health, to all sorts of opportunities that they might not have because they either don't have a car or public transportation doesn't serve those specific needs. Which brings me to number four. Public transportation is in perennial crisis. Right. Cities struggle to fund it properly Fares go up and up. Trains and buses struggle to meet all our needs for moving around cities. It's important, public transportation, but maybe we want more from it than it can give. 
even public-private partnerships that have put city bikes on the streets miss that last mile of convenience and opportunity for people that only comes from having their own bike. Mm -hmm. Having said all that and understanding that I'm preaching, I hope to the choir, uh, it seems painfully obvious to me that what we need is a national public health campaign to promote cycling specifically Mm. and an easy-to-access tax rebate for people to invest in cycling for themselves. They've done this in the UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Virtually every bike shop in the UK has a little click-through button where you can use your tax-free benefits to buy a bike, cycling-related clothing, you know, headlights, helmets, all that stuff. Wow. Um. In fact, across Europe, these kinds of incentives are already working to get more people out of cars and onto bikes. And what I'm saying is that cycling is a powerful solution to so many of our biggest problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't talked about the obesity epidemic. I haven't talked about, you know, addictions and other things that that either either peripherally or directly cycling can be part of the solution for. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of another activity that is more worthy of government investment. Uh, I should, won't even say government. I'll say public investment. Yeah. Um, yeah. We need that national health campaign uh, to shift the national consciousness towards cycling as transportation. And look, I'm as cynical as anyone. I understand the challenges logistically, financially, and culturally. I get it. We're a car culture. We don't spend money on health care. We're fiercely opposed to being told what to do. But just as public health campaigns and, and tax policy massively reduce the number of people who smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. the case for promoting cycling is so straightforwardly easy to make. Mm-hmm. Yep. That the mind boggles we've sat by and done nothing this long. It It is a, as a public policy effort, it's kind of a lob, isn't it? There's, n- I can't, I, what is the downside? <laughs> how does it not? That's, that's really the thing. How does it not produce results? Mm-hmm. And you could say, I mean, uh, in this moment, you might say, well, supply chain, we, we just can't get bikes or we can't get there's a lot of things we can't get. And I, I think that's a problem in search of a, a solution. Do you know what I mean? I think that I'm sorry. A solution in I search of it, a problem. A solution in, in search of a problem. I think that um, if you were mobilizing this level of tax incentive for people. Um, then you would see domestic manufacturing increase it's already domestic manufacturing of bicycles is already on the rise yeah i mean well just before this call you and i were discussing detroit bikes and you know the cool work they're doing so that's right uh you know they are out there. in a position to circumvent some of that trouble right yeah right and you know it's one of those things where yeah if there was uh a real incentive uh, you know, tax credits, that sort of thing being offered by our government, we would see more companies rise to help fill that that need. 
I think we would. And I think, you know, part of the part of the challenge with American cycling culture is that it is a culture of the middle and upper classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the sort of cycling that's been promoted and supported and pursued has been expensive Mm -hmm. uh, and has been less, you know, transportation oriented. Yeah. Um, and I think that to grow what we all want to grow, we have to find um, ways to make cycling affordable for people. And, and that this is such an easy one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, I don't think you would have to do a lot of uh, abstruse calculation to determine that this is an investment that would pay back in actual monetary terms. Uh broadly for the public yeah uh so let's call this a case study if if you will um so a couple years ago i did a story about my hometown of memphis for bicycling magazine in 2010 bicycling decided to name memphis the worst city in the (laughs) nation for cycling Mm. uh and, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you, you build your case, you know, maybe it wasn't really the worst. Maybe it was only the second worst. But, you know, they did their study and they said mm, it doesn't get worse than this. Well, a lot has happened in Memphis since 2010. And uh, there is a case to be made that no city in the nation has made greater strides with regard to cycling than Memphis has. So back in uh, 2018, yeah, uh, I'm struggling. Maybe it was 2016. I went back to Memphis uh, to work on a story about the city and, you know, all the strides that they'd made. One of the really interesting things that came out of it uh, was that I got to sit down with uh, former mayor A.C. Horton. Uh, He's an African-American man and just the consummate politician. You walk out of a meeting with him thinking, if he runs for the Senate, I'm working on his campaign. He's one of those people, just like, wow. Uh, Charisma in spades. Yeah, yeah, just remarkable. And I mean, I haven't had many experiences like that in my life. It's like, oh, well, no wonder this guy did what he did. Mm. So... Memphis is curious because they have what uh, they have a bike path called the Green Line. It's a former railway and it got converted into a bike path and it slices right through the middle of the city. And it was one of those things where this one piece of infrastructure completely transformed the city in terms of uh, recreation. And so like, uh, I've got a good friend in Memphis who used to own, uh, a couple of bike shops. Trek owns them now. That's a different story. Uh, the year that the green line opened, his business doubled, Mm. doubled. Now, when I sat down with Mayor Wharton, uh, the thing I asked him was, you know, how, how did you sell this? And he said, well, you know, I knew that all the white folks, it wasn't going to be any problem to sell it to them. They already had bikes. They were riding bikes, but that's not what the city needed. He said, 
you know, in every in every health index that there was obesity, cholesterol, uh, you know, you name it, education. <laughs> Memphis was either the bottom or near the bottom. And he said, we needed a way to start turning that around. And he knew that for the green line to fly, he couldn't just sell it to white people. He had to sell it to everyone. Uh, as he put it, he said, I had to sell it to my people. And he said, I knew that because so many of my people were working two jobs, you know, I wasn't going to sell them on go out and buy a bike and, you know, in your free time, go ride a bike on the green line. They're working two jobs. I sold it based on their kids. Do this for your kids. Give your kids a place to play, a place to recreate, a place to be healthy. Uh, and he said, that's what made the difference for the green line. And the thing is, because it was just this one piece of infrastructure in Memphis, uh, other cities in the South began looking at Memphis like the old uh, life, uh, life cereal commercial. Look at Mikey. Mikey, he likes it. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. going, hey, if Memphis can get this right, we're bound to be able to pull this off um, as if, you know, Memphis was too stupid to get something right. And there was a time where I could see people thinking that. <laughs> But mm. it, this one thing began uh, the snowball rolling downhill and picking up more snow and more momentum. And there are a lot of bike lanes in Memphis now. Uh, the, 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 uh, the main thoroughfare near the home where I grew up was four lanes. It's now two lanes with bike lanes. The, the day I turned down there and I turned right into the bike lane because I didn't expect that it was a bike lane. I figured it was still a traffic lane. I was shocked. I just <laughs> couldn't even, you know. Um, and, you know, I think gradually we're starting to turn this big old battleship. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I see the way the infrastructure, like in my town, same way, Mass Mass Ave, uh, which travels through Boston and through Cambridge and through Arlington, where I live, uh, was definitely a death trap for cyclists for a long time. Uh, and now, you know, uh, those three towns and many others have installed bike lanes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at first that was still a dodgy proposition because, as I like to say, paint isn't in really infrastructure. Mm. Um, but... It's sort of psychological infrastructure, and over time, as people started to use it uh, and feel safer in it, uh, more people started to use it. And now I think it's it's really paying dividends in terms of uh, the number of cyclists going up. And I think I think what I'm talking about isn't about those sorts of infrastructure investments. This is about extra structure. Is that a thing? I'm talking about putting putting bikes in people's garages yeah. or in in their on their apartment balconies not to touch a, <laughs> a sore subject with you but you know uh, uh putting pe bikes in people's hands empowering them to get get themselves from a to b get healthier get outside drive less ease the burden on public transit, all of those things. Um, and I think that's the next step in our cycling investment. But I, I do think you're right about that. Uh, 
It, it's hard to be both a, a cynic and a sort of Pollyanna optimist at the same time, but I'm trying to jam those two ideas well, together. I mean, isn't that what results in us calling ourselves realists? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> or is that progressive? I, I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I like that. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think is so promising is that you know the experience of riding an e-bike it's um well it's a little like sex you don't need anybody <laughs> to, to tell you that it's a good time <laughs> um there's so much i want to say and so much that i'm not going to but um but yeah, I agree with you. Right? Riding an e-bike is a, uh, it is, it's just, it's like free, it's free, it, you know, it does feel very much like free freedom, if that mm -hmm. makes yeah. any sense. It's yeah. not free. They do cost money. But, you know, in the way that if you buy a motorcycle, uh, you have to get it insured and fill it with gasoline and do other things, uh, an e-bike you know, you plug that thing in and you just go. You yeah. got a lot of movement at your disposal. Yeah. That, that little bit of multiplication. Okay. So maybe it's 400% in some cases, but you right. know, that, that little multiplication of your effort, um, it just, you know, it feels so seamless. And, uh, I, I think the, I think it's the, 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 wow to effort ratio is mm. just so high you know once people have that experience of getting on an e-bike uh and i mean you know it's true because if i can experience it as a dedicated cyclist if mm. i can get on an e-bike and go oh holy cow this is a good time you know everybody else is gonna go wait what have i been missing here yeah, I mean, I, my my uh, feelings about e-bikes have uh, evolved and changed. And um, initially I thought, well, if we put a bunch of e-bikes out there, people will stop pedaling uh, and that will kill the sport, the sport, the activity, whatever that I love. Mm -hmm. And so I'm against it. And uh, I've come to see that it doesn't matter. Like I would so much rather a thousand people be on e-bikes and even be sloppy on their e-bikes mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. than be driving around in cars where they're also sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think yeah, uh, e-bikes are uh, a great a great solution to this problem or to many problems. I don't even view them necessarily as bikes, and that's fine. You know, I think we've I've joked on this podcast before about them being they're not bad bikes. They're good mopeds. <laughs> that would be a first. I mean, there were no good mopeds. There were mopeds. Right. They weren't good. But yeah, that's I, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I th it doesn't matter. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. <laughs> that's all fine, because I think um, getting more people out of cars and I, even even if you've got an electric car, I've got an electric car. Even to get out of the electric car and move your body uh, through the world uh, without being 
encased in steel and glass is good for you. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not, even if you're, you have lessened your impact on the planet, a bike is still a better solution. So. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think one of the things that really makes me hopeful is that as the number of people on all forms of bikes increases, that increases the weight of the need to do more for cycling infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is the snowball rolling downhill. I think that the we have put a lot of money and energy into advocating for better infrastructure, civic, you know, infrastructure for cycling. The next big bunch of momentum available to us is by empowering people who aren't on bikes now to get on them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah, if we're making it easier for them to do that, they're that much more likely to do it. Yeah. Cool. Alrighty, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by The Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What do you got for us? I'm going to tattle on myself. When I was a kid, I got in an awful lot of fights. Uh, I was kind of a self-control free zone. Uh, the uh, Internally, the volume of my emotions runs at about seven or eight most of the time. But the really intense stuff will definitely take me up to 11. I'm like a Marshall stack. Um, <laughs> as a writer, it's invaluable. But as one of the smallest kids in my class at an all-boy Catholic school, it was, um, I think they call that a liability. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but hey, spending a couple of decades getting to know yourself and you don't tend to react to everything physically anymore. So, upsides. Um, I bring this up because something happened last week that I am still absolutely sorting through. Uh, I mentioned previously, uh, and you sort of sideways referred to it, that uh, I had two bikes stolen just before Thanksgiving. <clears throat> How's that for irony, by the way? Mm. Mm. Um, I wasn't all that thankful that day. <sighs> Moving right along. Uh, so last week, I actually saw a guy out riding one of my bikes. Mm. I know it was mine because homeless people don't ride up pivot Mach 4 SL with Fox live valve and Shimano Diori. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing. Uh, he'd swapped a few parts out, you know, to try to throw me off the scent or anybody else off the scent. 
but I mean, pff, right, as if uh, it was my bike. So I rode up to him and I told him to get off the bike and that I was calling the police. That seemed like a reasonable thing to do. Did he do that? Of course not. He takes off. And of course, I follow. Uh, I'm on my gravel bike, so staying with him isn't exactly hard. I call 911 as I'm pedaling. And honestly, <laughs> I will say the look on his face when he heard me talking to the 911 operator was something approaching priceless. Uh, the operator talks to me and I read off a street that we're riding by to give her some notion of the uh, neighborhood we're in. Um, and she says they're going to send uh, a car to the neighborhood that we're riding through. Now, I'm close enough to him that I can actually reach out and touch him. There's no way he's getting away from me. He tries a couple of evasive maneuvers, uh, like doubling back and rolling up through people's yards. And I'm just right there the whole time. Doop, 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 doop. Um, I mean, I'm a cyclist, not a homeless guy, you know, so this, this just isn't a challenge. But here's the thing. At one point, after we've been doing this for a while, he pulls into a yard, gets off the bike, walks up to this gate, opens it, and walks through the gate. Before I get to what happened next, I have to do a little detour here. As I've mentioned previously, bike theft is a huge problem here in Santa Rosa. And I am rather officially over it. Just so done. Uh, I'm not. How many bikes have you had stolen in the last? Upwards of a half dozen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I hadn't had a bike stolen since I was a kid and I've had more than six stolen here. Really? Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, and around here, stories circulate about friends having bikes ripped off. You know, they, they abound. Um, you know what else abounds? Stories of guys finding their bikes and finding the homeless guy with the bike and beating the stuffing out of the thief. Some of the stories I've heard have made me wonder, like, if these guys wound up at the hospital. Um, there is uh, a certain socially acceptable machismo to beating up the guy who stole your bike, at least here in this town. Um, I've never heard anyone question whether or not, you know, beating the guy up was the okay thing to do. It, mm. it, it just it doesn't seem to be an ethical question in this community. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's partly because we know the police aren't really ever going to do anything about it. They act as if be, there's just no way for them to reconcile uh, this problem. So I'm standing in some unknown yard. We're both off of my bikes. Yeah, my bikes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I'm in a position where I could have physically attacked him. I don't know that there's anyone around to stop me. Uh, and, you know, let's be clear. I'm mad as hell. Um, but I look around and while I don't know for certain it's his home, he he has all the appearances of a homeless guy. But I'm wondering if maybe there's a second gate in back that he's simply going to pass through. Um, but it's private property. And if I go back there, 
uh, things could maybe go very badly for me. Or maybe he knows the people who live there and somebody of his is going to come out and help him. You know, I've been following this guy through the neighborhood for a solid 10 minutes and Santa Rosa is not that big a town. If they were sending a police cruiser, it could easily have been there by then. So this has not been a big priority for them. Uh, and at this point, I'm suspicious that, you know, they might not come at all, mm. uh, as opposed to just eventually when they leave the donut shop or whatever. So I'm looking at him and I realize I've got a choice to make. Either I get physical with him or I let him go. I let him go. I really didn't even think about, should I get physical or not? That wasn't the question, really, that I asked myself. The question on my mind was, what options do I have? Hitting him wasn't one of the options. Uh, So my choices were either follow him or let him go. And something in me said that following him was, A, ethically a big problem, and that there was a real opportunity for danger, item B, uh, if I did. Uh, I didn't think he had a gun, um, but I was willing to bet he had something sharp. Uh, So my bike is still stolen. Uh, The Santa Rosa PD did show up. We'll have to use that word eventually. Um, It took an hour. I... Mm. (laughs) Like, I was getting in the shower when they finally called. Um, You know, they were wondering where I was. I was like, well, this all ended, you know, like 45 minutes ago. Um, So I feel confused. I don't... I know I didn't do the wrong thing. Get violent. But I'm not remotely convinced that I did the right thing. Uh, I feel like the right thing was getting my bike back, right? I mean, that's, you know, if I'd come out of the situation with my bike again, I'd have done the right thing. No, I think that's a, I think that's the, I think that's a a false leap of logic. Okay. Uh, Because you could have beaten him. I don't know what the, you know, you could have. I mean, that would have been the wrong thing. Sure, but it would have gotten you your bike back. So just simply right. saying that the right thing to do would have produced your bike. And and look, it's a tough one. Ooh. It's you're 100 percent right the, that uh, getting physical physical violence is not going to help anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's the I, thinking that leads to people going, I need to carry a gun. Right. Yeah. And that's not that's not a happy society. No, no, no. My view, violence begets violence always. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm glad you didn't get involved both for your safety and for his, because Mm -hmm. while he is a bike thief whom I abhor on principle, that doesn't mean I want physical harm to be the punishment for that it, it, you know it's funny i can also draw a delineation of i really don't care about his physical well-being uh my empathy for him has utterly checked out he's a bike thief got it yep but my my personal standards ethically yep. do not permit me to be 
the cause of his ill fortune. Yep. That's a weird space to be in. It is. It is. We have these, uh, you know, I think, I think w- one of the fundamental things humans deal with, and if you look at our media, um, you know, revenge is the theme of so many books and movies. <laughs> yeah. We, we have this natural urge to strike back against people we feel have wronged us. Yeah. But then if you try and reconcile that with violence begets more violence, um, and that actually in the long term it's in my interest not to live in a violent place, then you you it's hard to balance. And I think actually these these movies and shows and all of these things exist to affect some sort of catharsis for us, right? Like I don't actually want to do that, but I'm it somehow is gratifying me to see it. Yeah. I don't know that it helps. In fact, I think it may just, you know, sort of stoke the fire. But regardless, I get it. I mean, I think it is a very hard thing for us to reconcile. In terms of how you could have done it differently, um, you know, when I, I, I worked at a bike company, I worked at seven cycles for eight, nine, nine seasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, we would periodically get calls from people saying my bike got stolen and then we would have other people saying, oh, I'm looking at this bike or I just bought this bike used. What can you tell me about it? <laughs> and so we did have the occasion on several. Uh, in several of these instances to say, well, you've just bought a stolen bike. Or. You know, someone is calling with nefarious intent. They, I know they have a stolen bike. They don't know that I know they have a stolen bike. Uh, and so, you know, we, we got the police involved a few times. And it's, it's dicey, right? You know, you, <laughs> I've heard of people doing Craigslist stings to get bikes back and things yep. like that. And doing it sort of um, vigilante style or doing it with the police. My my impression of the police is that very, very few of them are interested in being bothered. Um, I think they think that bike theft is petty crime. Um, what I tried to impress on all of the police that I dealt with was that this bike is worth, you know, somewhere between three and ten thousand dollars. So this is not a small crime. Right. This is tantamount to a car theft. And when you put it in those terms, I think they they begin to understand. I think I, I, I don't I shouldn't talk about the police side because I don't understand it. I don't know what their calculus is. I don't know whether they think, well, this is a petty crime. The judge doesn't care. They're going to you know, if it's a homeless person, they're going to do, you know, 24 hours behind in jail. And, you know, that's a lot of paperwork and it makes no difference. And I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just create. I just spun out a scenario that could be total nonsense. So please don't <laughs> take that. But I do get that uh, the police aren't a great um, uh, resource in a lot of these cases. Um, sometimes I think you just have to be clever. Like in this case, and I, I don't. You know, who knows? But you know, if you had said if 
to this guy, if you put the bike down, I will not call the police. You can just walk away. Would that have produced a different outcome? I, I don't know. Uh, I suspect that anyone who is taking the time to run from you, <laughs> especially over a period of time where you're very clearly not going to be easy to lose. Uh, I mean, it sounds like he was very married to the idea of keeping that bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, I it's weird because, you know, it just it reopened a wound that you know, wasn't closed, but mm. wasn't festering in quite this way. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I'm riding a borrowed mountain bike right now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I try to maintain the attitude. Look, I'm fortunate. I am fortunate in all of the ways that a human would want to be fortunate. Mm -hmm. Um, so I try to take the view as, as painful as it would be to have one of my bikes stolen. For example, I try to cultivate the attitude. Anyone who steals that needs it more than I do. I'm, I'm unable, uh, <laughs> to cultivate that idea because yeah. I mean, here's the thing in my town. I know that bicycles are the, they are the um they're the cash of the homeless economy mm. that you know it's it's not so much cash itself it's the it's the movement of the stolen bikes that is the primary driver of the economy of the homeless population here sure i e he needs that bike in order to get what he needs to live his life I'm not saying it's good or mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. but I am saying that um, his ability, he's weighing his ability to survive versus your ability to recreate. Uh, and, you know, if I wanted to be uh, especially difficult about it, I could say, well, you know, this is a piece of my mental survival. My yeah. overall, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think the thing about bike thieves um, that makes what they do so painful is that they're not it's not just property theft. Mm -hmm. It's like a peace of mind theft. It's like, well, it's personal way in which your sofa or your TV is not right. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, come steal my TV. You know, I'll talk to my right. insurance company. It'll be fine. Whatever. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, you steal my bike and, you know, now I'm having sleepless nights. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's a very hard situation. I, In saying that in, in describing the attitude I try to cultivate, I was not <laughs> I was not trying to uh, lessen your pain. Uh, I know I get completely how hard it is. Um. For myself, I just tried because, you know, m maybe it's one of those defensive mechanisms uh, or or like the inverse gratitude where like I have to be gratitude, great, grateful for the things that I have such that if someone takes them, um, I have to understand that they needed it more. I'm not going to like it. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Yeah. Yep. Uh, it, you know, I, I feel like the, the Zen novice, it's like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't get the koan yet. I, I don't. Well, it's also a process. It's not just saying, oh, I just, if anyone steals anything from me, I'm fine about it. I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but the attitude, you know, I think it's uh, one of the things that I try to do with my behavior, especially in those moments where I feel like I could rise to physical violence or emotional cruelty or just impoliteness. Mm -hmm. I try to say, what will I want this to have looked like? Because in the moment, I can spew uh, invective and profanity. I can be emotionally scathing. I mean, presumably I could be physically violent. I, it's not a thing for me. I just, that's not really a thing that I do. Uh, but I mean, you know, I guess I'm capable of it. But in, in, in all of those difficult times, I, and I'm, I'm stewing like, oh, what could, should I do or what should I have done? I think, what will I want this to have looked like? Down the road, when I look back, what will I want to have done yeah, I mean, is the thing I'm contemplating something I'm going to regret? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's regret up to, you know, feeling neutral about it. And then there's a the possibility that you could feel positive about the experience by having risen it above risen above it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very hard, and as I said, I do think it's a process. Like I very seldom Often I think doing nothing, maybe that you did the right thing in that you reached a point where you said, I'm going to do nothing. I, you know, it's funny because I spent some time thinking about well, what could have, could I have done that would have been better than what I did? And I thought about, yeah. well, maybe I should have just like, you know, sat 50 yards away and called the police first and not sure, said sure, sure. anything. You know, maybe yeah. I should have taken a picture of him. I had a, you know, I had my camera out because I was talking yeah. on my phone. I could have done that. There were, you know, so all I'm clear on is that I managed to think clearly enough not to do a bad thing. Right. I was too clouded to do the smartest possible thing. I'm still not clear what that was, but I, sure. you know, even now sitting here calmly, I'm not sure what it was. Certainly in that moment, I couldn't dream it up. Uh, and that's, you know, therein lies my disappointment with myself. I think, I think if you hold yourself to a standard where you do no harm, you're in a conflict and you have a lot of intense feelings happening and it's a dynamic situation you know to some extent it's game theory the other person <laughs> is uh, is doing actions that predicate you know and you're do trying to do calculus uh i think doing no harm is a pretty good bar for having succeeded so i i don't think you're in a position to need to beat yourself up over what you did because in the end i think you did no harm Okay, I will, uh, <clears throat> I'll put a check mark in the W column. <laughs> I'm only going to put it in with pencil, though. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do some baseline picks. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, let's lighten this thing right up. Uh, this week, I'm picking another key piece uh, of winter riding uh, apparel. Mm-hmm. The Castelli Bandito Scully. Ooh. Which is, I mean, it's a name that makes it sound like a real pirate uh, get up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a thin merino wool hat that will fit under your helmet. Mm. There is a cap version also, uh, but I prefer the plain one without a brim because uh-huh. I find it a lot more versatile. There are a lot of options for this kind of hat out there. There are windproof ones and there's fleecy ones. Uh, I greatly prefer wool. Uh, it's the old saw that it is warm, but also breathable, breathable mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the instance uh, or uh, with a hat. Heat leaves your body through your head, so wool gives it the ability to escape rather than build up and leave you with a sweaty mess of a head in cold weather. Uh, so I'm I'm really into that. Uh, I use mine under my bike helmets, uh, my road helmet. Sometimes I put, and because it's thin, you know, you can put a cap over it if you insist on wearing a cycling cap under your helmet, which I often do. Uh, obviously, it goes under a mountain helmet. Uh, I use it under my ski helmet on the coldest days. I put it under another hat when I go out to walk the dog. Um, <laughs> it's just that useful. Sometimes uh, if I'm walking the dog, I'll put the the scully on and then I put a baseball cap over that. Um, so that's what I like, that it's it's thin, it's wool, it's breathable, it's warm. I can use it in a million uh, scenarios uh, and for 40 bucks retail. The value proposition doesn't have to be much stronger than that. Well, considering it's Castelli, mm. finding something from Castelli for $40, uh, that's kind <laughs> of an achievement in itself. I mean, that's maybe one of the best reasons to buy it, you know, just so you can own something from Castelli for 40 bucks. Yeah, there you go. Because their, their quality is unfailingly good. <laughs> it is. Yeah. They make they make good things. Yeah. And, and they make they make stylish things as well. This is a hat that goes under stuff, so maybe you're not that concerned about it. But it it does have a little bit of, uh, I don't know, what's Italian for je ne sais quoi? Not je ne sais quoi. No, no, no. <laughs> What's what are you uh, picking this week? Well, when I'm in the woods and not moving quickly, mm-hmm. I like you prefer to wear breathable layers. Uh, I want to stay both warm and dry. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, this week I'm picking one of uh, well, some of my favorite base layers out there, the Sportful Body Fit Pro base layers. So they come in both long sleeve and short sleeve, and the short sleeve one is. As my French friends say, le bombe atomique. Uh, <laughs> Do your French friends say that? Uh, they, they have, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the fabric has a smooth finish on the outside, you know, like any polyesterish sort of thing would. Um, on the inside, it's a ribbed fleece. Uh, so it helps trap air right at your skin. Um, Here's how much I like them. If I'm going outside uh, a a bunch, you know, for a while on a cool day, um, but not for a ride, I'll wear one of these beneath my street clothes so that I don't have to wear as heavy a jacket. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
The short sleeve is good for, you know, say 10 degrees of extra warmth. Uh, and the long sleeve is better for, or is a closer to 15 degrees, I'd say. Mm -hmm. uh, the short sleeve version, I find especially useful because it means you can wear a short sleeve jersey plus arm warmers and be perfectly warm. For me, that combo will take me to about 45 degrees. For you, it's what, a five degrees Fahrenheit? <laughs> uh, um, you know, if I'm going hard enough, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. because it's sportful, that does mean a couple of other things. One, the cut is dynamite. Uh, it's not like some things where it's overly long and skinny, uh, or, you know, short and loose. Uh, and the material's very, very stretchy. So it fits well beneath, uh, jerseys and jackets and that sort of thing. Um, Put another way, it can accommodate holiday meals, either individually or cumulatively, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, thing two is that it comes in seven, yes, seven sizes, from extra small to 3X. Wow. Uh, yeah, just most impressive. Uh, I don't know of too many things in cycling that come in seven sizes. Yep. The long sleeve goes for 75 and the short sleeve goes for $70. And there will be links to both in our show notes. Alrighty. I would say also, um, mm -hmm. uh, the guys at Sportful are real nice. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't dealt with them extensively, but all of my communication with them has been fantastic. I like I like buying stuff from nice people. I, I know that everyone does. I'm saying stupid things right now, but uh, not everyone's nice. Goes a long way. It it really makes a difference. You know, when you like the people who work for a company, it mm. it does affect your willingness to give them your greenbacks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, they're they're lovely people. They really are. Um, and they make me wish I was still Nordic skiing because their Nordic ski gear is, oh, uh, mm. Le Bon Atomique. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. That's a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. Uh, I would ask you what you're doing for fun this weekend, but, uh, we're two weeks out from that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be helping my mom get around. That's going to be yeah. an adventure. Yeah. So before we go, we want to let you know that we're going to be dropping some extra podcasts in your feed over the coming weeks. Uh, it will have happened some by the time you hear this. Uh, it's one thing to tell you we are producing some new podcasts, but it, well, we figured it might be helpful to make it easy for you to give them a try. Uh, so that's why they're appearing in your feed. We won't be doing this permanently, but we figured give them a listen. If you like them, hopefully you'll go subscribe. Um, you know, and they are available in iTunes and Stitcher and lots of other places. Uh, if they're not in a place that you like, let us know in our show notes. Go make a comment. Um, let's see. Send us some questions. We haven't gotten any in a little bit. So if you've got an idea or a question or something, drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in our comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. <laughs>